What COVID-19 has really brought to the surface is how few city professional city builders have been thinking about equity and have been thinking about justice and fairness because our cities took a huge hit and our communities took a huge hit during COVID and for all the city building that's happening all across Canada, around the world, but all across Canada, here we are. I'm John Lewis, and you're listening to 360 Degree City, a podcast where we talk to people who are working to make cities better. Our hope is that after each episode, you'll start to see your own city from a slightly different angle. The COVID-19 pandemic has revealed deep cracks in our systems. Experts are concerned that food insecurity in Canada may double from pre-pandemic numbers. Long-term care facilities, which have been brutally hit by COVID, are underfunded and understaffed. And the virus is disproportionately impacting communities of color. However, without the collection of race-based data, it's hard to truly determine this impact. But as our systems continue to crumble and shift, there's also an opportunity to recover stronger than ever, with a much-needed societal focus on equity and social justice. So I wanted to talk to someone who's placed equity at the core of their work and is currently working towards an equitable recovery from COVID-19. Well, my name is Sara Ibrahim. I am the co-founder of Monumental, uh, which is an organization that focuses is focusing on um, contributing to an equitable recovery from COVID-19 um, and really centering that equitable recovery on fairness and justice uh, within institutional contexts. And so uh that's what I do. Um, I'm happy to explain more about what yeah, that means. Yeah, we'll dive in. <laughs> uh, I, I had watched your uh, your TEDx talk and the what do you do and how do you describe yourself? It's really uh, it's it's really great. <laughs> yeah, it's, so how much that, time do you have? That question is is always for people who do, you know, work that sometimes feels like hugging a cloud. You know, it's hard to offer up the specificity. Mm-hmm. Uh, that people need to understand it. So it's for those of us who do that kind of work, it's, it's always a head scratching question. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And it's, uh, I find myself with the, uh, depending on my level of energy and how much I want to get into it for the day, it just sort of, I have an urban planning consultancy and that's it, which yeah, is yeah. so far from what we actually do, but it's a good shorthand. And I appreciate it in your talk when you, when you listed the different words that were used for you, how you kind of yeah. snarled when you use the word consultant. And I kind of feel the same way. <laughs> exactly. So it depends on the day and depends on the thing. So I've got 20 different versions. In this episode, Zara and I discuss the importance of deeply engaging with communities to help citizens be part of long-term neighborhood change what it means to be a city builder in the time of COVID-19, Zara's work that focuses on an equitable recovery from COVID-19, which includes an app that helps Torontonians navigate the crisis. Zara has also formed a new organization called Monumental, a venture in partnership with our latest podcast guest, Kofi Hope. So let's dive in. Maybe let's uh, dive in and talk about design and design processes. Uh, So over the course uh, of your career, um, you've used design processes to explore community engagement and institutional innovation and participatory decision making. Uh, Can you maybe talk about that work and describe how that design process differs from how communities are typically heard or represented in how we build our cities? Yeah, I mean, I know this then and I didn't know it now, but it's all centered on power. Um, And so my career started uh, working with, you know, I I was 
really keen to participate in the world of architecture and planning. And the more I learned and the more questions I asked about, so how are people engaged in the process and what does decision-making look like when there's public investment in a neighborhood or community or place? And, um, the responses were always sort of dance, you know, a dance around an answer, but not a real answer, which really helped me understand that people were not meaningfully engaged, not just like about what the building looks like, feels like what it should be, but really around what it means to invest in their neighborhood and community long term, mm. right? Like people are engaged on a project. But if you were to ask folks, like, what do you want for your neighborhood or community long term? The asks might be different than a reaction they have to a specific building or site or place. Um, So my work is really rooted. It began in working in um, places that in Toronto would be called priority neighborhoods or neighborhood improvement areas, places where there's high high densities of folks experiencing barriers, people living in poverty. Um, And I started my work by, you know, starting a small firm. that worked in neighborhoods to build deep literacy and capacity around how the built environment changes. Hmm. So that is everything from um, how do you take, you know, a site and um, conceive of a building and talk to institutions and um, all the professionals required and think about the policy frameworks around it and think about the financing around it. Um, so my work really started out working with communities to build that deep literacy, build that deep capacity. So generationally, folks living in these neighborhoods could influence what their communities look like, not just a single site. Mm-hmm. Uh, That work evolved because there's so much public investment in the places that I was working that the governments, philanthropic organizations, other like large charities that were investing in those neighborhoods and communities said, this is an interesting process. Could this process be applied to our strategy, the redesign of this program um, to a policy? And I wasn't naming it design or human-centered design, Mm -hmm. but it all borrowed from learnings from understanding cities, architecture, um, and how buildings got built. So it was sort of a borrowed applied design process, but at the time I didn't have language uh, to call it that. And so I ended up sort of doing both this really grassroots community work, but also working with the institutions that were supporting these communities to have them use the same process. So there, there was a consistent language at least around process <laughs> mm. oh interesting uh, which is a start yeah yeah for sure and <clears throat> and and i guess a common theme through that is um uh, being able to navigate the complexity of yes. how a city evolves over time how that translates into an organization and back out etc eh? yeah very much so it's um you know i i, I think that the way that communities are typically engaged is through consultation. And this is a boring old story. And um, so I won't get into it. But, you know, do you know, do you like these bells and whistles? Do you not? Um, Versus really understanding sort of deep and unarticulated need, like the needs that haven't been articulated yet. Um, Their wants, their wishes, their ambitions, their fears. That's how you understand um, a community. You don't Mm -hmm. understand by um, asking them about a specific building. And there's very few institutions who have the mandate or departments within institutions who have the mandate to ask the question, you know, what do you want from your life? What do you want from connection with people? Mm -hmm. Uh, And so my work tried to fill in those gaps 
um, and and not not to do it, not to be the person doing it, but to build enough literacy and capacity so that when investment came to places, communities and and specifically community, I spent a lot of time in Kingston Galloway. They have a grand vision now around, you know, what they want their workforce to look like, what they want their built environment to look like, what they want conservation, transportation planning. And and that's very, a very small part. Um, the very small part of what they're doing is what we did together. But it's it started to, especially when working with young people in those communities, it starts to sort of retrain their neural pathways from I don't belong to I do belong. I don't have access to I do have access. I can never understand that. That makes a ton of sense. Hmm. Um, so that's also part of it, too, right, is, is um, reminding people that that permission is there. Hmm. And, and can you maybe speak to so the sort of typical processes of responding to a project and this bell or that whistle yep. is typically a reactionary kind of mm-hmm. process. And so what you get is um, a limitation on change because you're talking about, I don't want this specific change right now. Can you maybe talk about what you've experienced in terms of the reaction reactionary that typically happens with homeowners in particular um, and a project that's coming to their community versus what sounds like a very proactive approach to change uh, and, and what that looks and feels like. Yeah. I mean the, the, and you know, I, I don't want to cast anyone in a typical light because I think every, you know, jurisdiction is so different. Every community is so different. Um, but I do think that uh, when we feel a sense of safety and comfort. Um, I think we want to protect that. And I think that is um, very like this primal instinct that I don't mm-hmm. want things to change and I like things the way they are. And um, that's where, and, and then, you know, combine that with, you know, in this moment where we are talking about systemic racism and we are talking about unconscious bias, you know, combine that like very primal human instinct uh, around like sort of protecting your homestead, you know, protecting mm-hmm. style that you um, cherish um, and combine that with sort of systemic racism and bias and you have a recipe for no thank you I don't want change um and so I think and and it it really is hard I think for folks to again similarly it's hard to envision something holistic when you're being asked about something specific Mm -hmm. right Mm -hmm. and so the reaction you get is a specific reaction, which I, I don't want change. But if you nest that change, you know, if, if the conversation was about what this means is that our city is safer, is that more people thrive, is that if that was the way that even a single project was positioned, I think there would be a potential for a better conversation. Mm-hmm. But we don't nest a single project in the broader conversation. And so the reaction that we get um, you know, my, my friend Misha Gluberman always, he leads, he teaches this class on negotiation called how to talk to people about things. And he, he says, you know, often when we go into any negotiation, you know, with your family member, with a colleague, with a friend, um, everything's a negotiation. <laughs> when you go into that negotiation, most people negotiate from position, right? You want this, I want this. And I'm not willing to budge on what I want. You're not willing to budge on what you want. But what most people don't go into negotiations with is an interest. Here's what, here's what I'd like. Here's what, here's sort of what I'm trying to achieve. 
here's my deeper interest. My deeper interest is, you know, I want to um, feel connected to my neighbors. I know everyone right now. And I, that makes me feel really safe. And so versus saying, I don't want a new building in my community. Um, so really we, we engage people from the position for into position negotiate when really we need to engage them in interest negotiations. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I, and imagine the, the educational component, like I really like the idea of deep literacy. So, you know, if I'm a, yeah. I don't know, an accountant, um, yeah. or a mechanic or what have you, I, I haven't spent years studying how these pieces of a city fit together and how they work together. Lots of people intuitively yeah. understand it when you talk to them about it, I find. But but that's that's uh, an interesting piece. Like certainly in our practice, we try to uh, like two fundamental tenets are people are they, they know more coming out mm-hmm. of a process and relationships in some way, shape or form are strengthened. And so yeah. if you have those two things and you have a, you know, at least a, a move towards building community and people understand that I might not initially like this bigger building, but yeah. it actually may impact my taxes. It may allow me to walk to a grocery store instead of drive, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. And, and I, I just think that, um, you know, I, I, I think people are, um, you know, it's just, it, it, I think it's just really primal, to be honest. I think we're mm-hmm. comfortable with change. I think um, when it comes to things like where we live, um, that we are raw nerves, you know, <laughs> it mm-hmm. is um, so central to us being able to thrive, right? It's such a core part of our social determinants of health, you know, having housing that helps us feel good, that makes us, that we, you know, dignifies us and all of that. And so any perceived threat, um, I think you're just going to get sort of the lizard brain reaction, I think, which is, Mm -hmm. you know, coming from our automatic and not our intentional self. It's coming from our reactive self, not a really thoughtful place. And we don't set up the conditions, right? You know, and this is the age old story of consultation, which is just the conditions are not right at the end of a work day when people are trying to figure out childcare, people are trying to figure out the money to get there, when people are hungry, when people don't like watching presentations, when people engage better in dialogue. Um, versus, you know, being informed. And so, you know, the list goes on. Um, yeah. yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, so speaking of change, there's been a small change in the last few months. I'm not sure if you've known about this <laughs> virus thing. Um, <laughs> so you, you've done a lot of uh, work and thinking and, and sharing a lot of, of ideas about um, the role of design in the middle of, of this pandemic. And maybe, could you maybe talk about the, uh, what it means to be a city builder uh, in the time of COVID and has it, has it magnified thoughts you've already had or has it changed uh, views that you've had on, on what it means to be a city, a city builder? Yeah. I mean, I have a unique perspective on city building um, only because, you know, going back to the start, my perspective on city building and, you know, to define it for me is, is to work in between the capital P professions, right? Mm -hmm. So, um, so, uh, you know, I don't carry any capital P professional designation yet. I work to influence uh, quality of life, um, for folks and opportunities to thrive for all. And so for me, being a city builder has always meant working in the spaces in between the capital P professions that govern decision-making and trying to unpack them, break them apart, open them up, air them out, (laughs) (laughs) 
see what's in there and reconstitute them. And so what COVID-19 has really brought to the surface is how few city professional city builders have been thinking about equity and have been thinking about justice and fairness because our cities took a huge hit and our communities took a huge hit during COVID. And for all the city building that's happening all across Canada, around the world, but all across Canada, here we are. Mm-hmm. Um, and our systems got stressed very fast and that is the work of city builders. So, you know, as, as, as someone doing that work. Um, and I, I'm, I'm cautious about the term resilience, but, um, you know, a colleague said to me today, you know, was talking about a reticence in, in the dialogue around resilience. Cause it often means it's either a, you know, she was saying either a, you know, a programmatic piece or something downloaded to volunteers in neighborhoods and communities. Mm. Um, and, So as a city builder right now, I feel that the most important part of the conversation is about fairness and justice and access. And that is our work. Mm -hmm. And a city builder working on anything else right now is not paying attention. Um, And so for me, it has made uh, it has gotten me back to the center and the core of what I've always done and allowed me to use the language that I want to use, which is a language of equity and a language of power. Um, which, you know, ahead of COVID was always a secondary auxiliary city building activity, central Mm -hmm. capital I infrastructure. And, you know, I, I've long been, um, a proponent of the idea of social cultivating and strengthening social infrastructure as much as capital I, you know, buildings and all the economic infrastructure and all the things that are part of helping the world um, go around. Um, and so COVID's really recentered me on the social infrastructure piece and what it means to support um, the connection of people to each other, to have an understanding of what each of the, what they all need to live good lives, um, and what it means to be in solidarity when you have enough, um, mm. and to share. And I think you know redistributing and sharing our power and our access and our resources is not is also something that you know not everyone is um, defaults to. Right. And, and so part of the work of city builders right now is helping, you know, residents of a place understand, well, how do we share our power? Well, part of that is sharing our resources. And um, and so that's been really central to the conversation for me and the practice for me of city building during COVID. Hmm. Yeah, it's, it's it's interesting when when um, <clears throat> thinking about the big P professions. I like the, I like that term. Um, and the, the be, it'll be interesting to see how many folks, um, are changing how they think about it, how they're changing their practice. Uh, my wife is a manager at a hospital here in Calgary and, um, she is really excited about the chance. She called it a once in a career opportunity to make system wide shifts that, you know, she's been working on forever, but it's just a forcing function. And so how many folks um, take advantage of that to make more just and more equitable cities instead of just let's let's just hold on so we can get back to the way things were, uh, which hopefully isn't the case. <laughs> you know, that also makes me think of 
this something Kofi, who you had on your show recently, mm-hmm. and I have been chatting about, which has been, it has been refreshing to hear organizations and institutions and leaders ask, so what should we do? What should we stop doing immediately? And typically when you're talking about equity in the context of city building or in the context of institutional reform, you're kind of like, I, I should speak for myself. I've had to, you know, bring it into a problem that an organization is already solving and trying to advocate for why it matters to have equitable outcomes in some spaces and in a lot of spaces that matter that, you know, the places I have access, um, the questions are getting better. And, um, Mm. you know, a colleague of mine who's an indigenous leader here in Toronto was saying to me last week that, you know, it's the quality of questions that people are asking that determine how committed they are to equity. And I've been hearing better questions. Um, and, and, you know, for those questions I have all the time. Um, and, and that's really cool. So that's, that's very helpful. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I mean, that's, in, that's interesting as, as we've, uh, evolved our own practice as we start a project, you know, similar, you, you come into a predefined question problem, half of the solutions already <laughs> assumed. Yeah. Uh, one of the things that delays the start of a lot of our projects, but we think in the best way possible is to ask, okay, what's, what's the one question we're trying to answer and work through that. And that's, uh, that's really challenging for folks. So that's, uh, that's, that's in the before times. Yeah. <laughs> so, so that's, uh, as, as you say, that that's encouraging that the questions are getting better and to, to really think about the context that we find ourselves in and to push for better questions and, and questions that matter. Um, right. yeah, I, I, I heard, uh, Dan Pink, describe um it was more of a societal conversation but completely could be applicable to our cities um that what what covid has shown is a society with no shock absorbers and i thought Mm -hmm. that was a really interesting way to to describe resilience in a way you know well it's also you know in the context of um you know to go back to your question around design i think you know, the other thing COVID has revealed is um, the challenges within the conventional practices of design um, or of human-centered design uh, in in my world um, and how much work needs to be done to draw out some systemic biases and, um, you know, decolonize design. Mm-hmm. Um the need for that as well. It has, you know, it has revealed that there have been, there's a, there's a woman, um, who is a curator at the IO festival Mimi, and she talks about missing data sets. And, you know, one of the things that I've noticed is how complicit designers and design researchers are in, um, what has been selected to be researched and studied around cities, around communities, and why are we missing all of this information um, mm. that would help us absorb, you know, some of and 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 respond to some of the crises, to all of the crises that are happening right now. And so that, to me, is also part of it. Is mm-hmm. uh, you know, our our 
the absence of some of that information is you know, it's, it's kind of meta, the practices need to renew themselves. You know, there's been all this conversation about, um, decolonizing planning, decolonizing philanthropy, all of these different sectors, but, you know, participatory design is no different. You know, my own practice needs to be interrogated as well. And, um, because, you know, I'm part of it, right. I'm part of that system as well. So, yeah. um, yeah, for sure. And I, and I think that's a really healthy, <clears throat> um, approach and, and gets back to the, the conversation about expertise and how people gain it to be able to protect it and put themselves at a certain level. So to be yeah. able to brave enough really to, to challenge your own practice of how you, um, you know, keeping an eye on what the question is and what impact you want to have, um, yeah. is, is really the key to, to be able to do that. Cause then, your practice is in service of what you're trying to achieve. It's not, it's not the thing. Yes, exactly. It's all, it's all on the outcomes, right? It's like, Mm -hmm. it's all better outcomes. Mm -hmm. And so one, one of the things in, in human centered design, one of the fundamental tenets is a bias toward action. Um, (laughs) so, uh, you embodied that through the development of an app. If I, read correctly your first ever app yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the COVID-19 Toronto app could you maybe talk about your motivations for that and yeah. uh, and describe what it's about and and what that experience was like yeah I mean I I you know my career has occupied um I've worked in the sort of public, social, and private sectors. And I have spent a lot of time in grassroots communities and with real, like, you know, institutional heavyweights. And um, so when, you know, the social distancing measures were put in place and we started to see the cracks and the tears in our social fabric, I had this, this not, you know, surge of information come my way. And in part, it was folks who have resources and power and access saying, where do I place this? And folks who, you know, don't have as regular, as accessible, um, you know, resource availability and um, saying, I need, I need stuff. You know, I need food. I need a hundred dollars. I need mm-hmm. a whole bunch of things. So I was getting it from sort of both ends and was feeling, you know, trying to figure out my own cadence, life cadence in the, in the new reality and realized I just needed to put all the information in one place for the people who I know and share it openly with them. So one night I took everything that had come into my inbox and my friend and colleague Liz helped me do, she helped me sort through it and sorted through her own. We popped everything into a Google spreadsheet and I posted it on Twitter, which seems to be, you know, COVID and Twitter, um, together have, you know, led to all sorts of serendipitous, interesting mm-hmm. things to me. And, um, and all of a sudden people started saying, Hey, can I add, can I use it? Organizations, institutions started reaching out and an ER doctor who was in quarantine after returning from a family vacation said, Hey, there's this platform where you can turn a Google spreadsheet into a web-based app. I didn't even know that there was a difference between a app and a, a web-based app and a native app and whatever. And, um, and helped me build this web-based app that would make all of the information that Google sheet more readily available, more user-friendly, more accessible. Um, and 
And then so that was happening at the same time as just dozens and dozens and, you know, hundreds of folks are reaching out with resources, wanting to help, wanting to connect to city services. Um, and then even the big sort of philanthropic bodies in the city were saying, we're trying to help agencies build this. So how can we treat How can we sort of connect all of this? Um it was fascinating to watch the uptake, you know, at, at the peak of, of, you know, our, um, you know, as our, uh, cases peaked, the usage peaked, right. Mm. So, you know, most days I was looking at somewhere between four and 6,000 users an hour, um, wow. on the app and, um, looking for a huge range of different things. And again, I, you know, I didn't want to position it as comprehensive, um, and made sure to sort of consistently, uh, share that this is just my world and my bubble. Um, but it was a really fascinating exercise in, you know, I'm not a fan of leading with technology that hasn't been my practice. It still Mm -hmm. isn't my practice. Um, but it was a really nice tool to support folks. It wasn't, you know, the tool wasn't used so much by, um, folks who had needs specifically for food or money or shelter, but it was used by people proximate to those folks Hmm. to quickly search. Um, or if, you know, you heard or ran into someone or something that was, or someone that was struggling, this was a centralized resource. Um, so it was pretty wild. And, you know, creating rituals around it was actually an act of self-care for me. Um, so oh, okay. you know, every morning going through all of the information that was coming my way, making sure the app was updated and sharing what I had added to the app with the sort of broader public through social media, um, gave me so much hope because it was unpaid volunteers just kicking butt and <laughs> trying to do things and people doing it off the side of their desks or the side of their, you know, parenting responsibilities, the side of, um, all sorts of things. And it wasn't only institutional responses. It was really community led. Um, Mm. and it's made me really, you know, fall back in love with the solidarity that does exist. Um, in our our city. Yeah. Wonderful. And kudos for taking that, taking that initiative and taking that on. I'm sure that's helped countless people in your city. So, yeah. um, so you, uh, you mentioned, uh, Kofi Hope, who I think it was yeah. six days ago. I had a conversation with, I think he was just on the phone as we were about to start our, yeah, our podcast yeah. conversation. <laughs> Happy coincidence. Um, so you're, you started, um, uh, this organization called Monumental, uh, which is focused on, uh, equitable recovery, um, from COVID. Can you maybe talk about what equitable recovery looks like in your view and, and what you, what you hope to, uh, what you hope to do with the organization? Yeah. You know, I, um, the organization was really founded for Kofi and I to, to work together with our skills, our networks, our experiences, um, and to push hard in places that most needed, um, the kind of skills that we have. And, what we what we realized during um, as the conversation started to shift to recovery, and you know, it was we were reminded today that um, you know those of us who have bandwidth to think about recovery most certainly haven't been on the responding side of COVID, and there are many folks still responding to COVID, and right. so you know our contribution is really to start tabling ideas, but not to crystallize any of those, but mm. to start the conversations and keeping the doors open. Um, but what we realized was institutions and um, 
systems our, our systems in society are all being reconstituted reconsidered um, you know given the the murder of George Floyd and um, all of the different things that have been happening in the world we are at this moment of reckoning where so much of what you know folks like Kofi myself and countless others in Canada and around the world but specifically for now in Canada um, have been advocating for around fairness and justice the opportunity is there now as institutions are getting rebuilt, as we're mm-hmm. rethinking the way that, you know, we function as a society. And so for us, an equitable recovery is really advocating for things we were advocating for before. <laughs> mm-hmm. But nesting it in this moment of what it looks like to rebuild fairly. And so it involves everything from, um, you know, better leadership. So new types of leaders, um, and, you know, cultural shifts within organizations, getting rid of de- diversity, equity, and inclusion departments and centralizing those those aspirations within corporate strategy, within decisions, within metrics for leaders. Um, it involves uh, rethinking, you know, employment in the labor market and what types of jobs are available and to who and, you know, decent work for everyone, which is something that we are still reckoning with as we look at companies who are not protecting their employees. Um, you know, it's it's a focus on resilience, um, which, you know, really is thinking about the strength of our social safety net um, and advocating for those who experience barriers and, you know, and then wrapping that all in... Um, sustainability, right? And mm-hmm. wrapping that all in thinking about our planet. <laughs> and we want all of we want the planet to exist. And so, you know, it really simply is looking at looking more carefully at where the cracks and the tears in our social fabric um, have been really exposed. They were always there. They are visible to more people now. And yeah. while tension is there, um, we are trying to keep the attention on those before, you know, we go back to business as usual. Um, so we're trying to keep the focus on where we most need to repair, uh, society, you know, our social safety net. And so, um, that's sort of the core, the core, what's at the core of equitable recovery for us. Mm-hmm. Amazing. And it really, it, it, it's been so interesting to just observe the, um, the, the rips and the tears and just how, uh, you know, the confluence of what's been going on, just how they've served as a magnifying glass of sorts yeah. onto those things that, like you say, were always there, but now they're that much more present and, and front of mind for people. And um, <clears throat> hopefully there's more people taking action, listening, understanding, because um, it's not just uh, it's going to take um, yeah, effort across, you know, from communities to corporations and every and everything in between yeah. for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's, it, it's new language for old things, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it's an equitable recovery is, um, you know, synonymous with social justice. It's synonymous with community development. It's, you know, it, it, it is, um, you know, to me, synonymous with all of the um, values that are underpin community-led design and particip- deep participatory practice and uh, co-creative practice. And so I think we're, we're calling it equitable recovery, um, but 
a lot of it is just see what we were talking about, see what happens when a crisis hits and we can't absorb this shock and right. um, preparing us in case this happens again. Now we have, you know, in, I feel like in, in the innovation world, I think it's Roger Martin who said like, you know, to, to get people to buy into anything, you have to make the future the past, right? Like mm. they have to, you know, see a manifestation of the future in the present. And unfortunately, we've seen it through COVID. We've seen it through, you know, the deaths of black men and women across the United States and Canada. And, you know, we've seen it even before COVID. We were seeing it um, with what was happening with the RCMP and indigenous communities. And so it's just made very clear um, that social justice is not a nice to have. Social justice is not chicken soup for the soul. It should be central to our decisions as institutions. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, uh, last question I have for you is the question that, uh, makes everybody angry. Cause I'm asking for one, I'll preface okay. it. Can you tell me about a city that you love and why you love it? Oh, I love <laughs> Chicago so much. Um, Chicago is my second city. Um, yeah. It is uh, the I, I fell in love with Chicago through a sabbatical I took um, in the organization I founded 15 years ago. Now um, we gave folks the summer off. Hmm. Uh, everyone got a paid summer off to go to engage in creative practice and sort of personal development. And I decided to move to Chicago and study at the second city. Um, and you know. Wow. I think I'm I'm super funny. Most people who know me do not. Uh, so that gives you any context. Well, <laughs> I got to go to Second City in Chicago. Um, but just the um, the deep sort of roots of community in that city and how um, you know it, it's so present in the everyday. Um, it is impossible to avoid the sort of layers of history and. Um, and sit within sort of the, um, you you feel very much, uh, it feels like a gift to be part of it um, Mm. because the history is still so present and it's so active and there's still so many negotiations around um, fairness and justice there actually. And Mm -hmm. um, so it feels always like a privilege to be in Chicago because uh, so many people feel such deep ownership over the city as they should. Um, I also just think it's the city where I laugh the most, you know, I, I, I now am <laughs> like, you know, I can't even count how many times I've been to Chicago and spent time there, I've lived there. And, um, you know, I, I, I do the same thing every time and it's just, I just laugh always. Um, so I have a ritual around the comedy shows. I go to the same ones every time I've seen them a million times over <laughs> And they're always funny and they're always new. And uh, so it's just, you know, my happy place. I could not be happier than um, when I'm in Chicago. So fantastic. I was really inspired by Zara's insights about what it means to be a city builder right now. We have to pay attention to how our work contributes or takes away from fairness, justice and access in our communities. And as systems crack around us, there's just so much opportunity for us to rebuild our communities and our cities in a just way that would improve life for us all. I hope we all can continue to ask better questions about what it means to work towards an equitable recovery from COVID-19. 
Over the past few months, we've released a series that explores the roles of different city builders. From landscape architects and developers to engineers and planners, many professions contribute to how our cities function, look, and feel. Our final episode in this series is dedicated to one of the most important city builders, the citizen. For this episode, we'd like your input. And we're curious what inspires you to be an active citizen in your community. Share your story about how you work as a citizen to improve life where you live. You can send us a recording of your response to hello at 360degree.city. We really hope we get lots of great stories from folks all over the world. 360 Degree City is created by our team at Intelligent Futures. To learn more about the work we do, go to intelligentfutures.ca. I'm John Lewis. Thanks for stopping by.